great delight for me to be along here this evening and to get such a great topic to be able to preach on, thinking together about the glory and the wonder of the great mystery, the mystery of the Incarnation. If you can see a Bible, please do turn back with me to the Epistle to the Hebrews and the second chapter. We're going to think particularly about verses 14 to 18. And we're going to start off by considering how Christmas is actually all about freedom. I don't know if you've had a chance to buy your Christmas cards yet, but you know that when you browse the cards, typically there will always be some that have got some of those words on the front of them, which in one way or another encapsulates something about what the season is about. So we're familiar with those Christmas cards emblazoned on the front of it is joy, maybe love, hope, peace. Those are words that we typically think are associated with the Christmas message. I would really love if we could get a card that also had emblazoned on the front of it just the word freedom. Because according to the author of the, of the epistle to the Hebrews, Christmas is all about freedom. Our passage tells us that Jesus came to earth in order to deliver a people. He came here in order to free them. Let's try to tease that out and understand why he would put such weight on that notion of freedom. Christmas sets people free. And we'll do that by asking, first of all, this question, what is it that we need to be freed from? If Christmas is about freedom, what do we need to be delivered from? What do we need to be rescued from? And there in our verses, we get the answer to that. It's there in verse 15. It talks about people who are living in a condition of lifelong slavery. And if you're a slave, well, then you need to be set free. And what kind of slavery is this that we're talking about? Well, we actually sang about it a few moments ago. We were thinking about a fear of death. A fear of death that the gospel frees us from, but we are held captive. We are slaves due to this lifelong fear of death. This awareness that we are going to die and that we will then have to give an account before the Lord God. It's true, isn't it? As we think about the human race, we fear death because deep down, In our heart of hearts, we recognize that we deserve to die. Why is that? Well, in our sin, we have gone through this life saying no to the one who is the very author of life. And only death can follow that. If we push away the one who is life, well, then we invite, indeed we deserve, death to come upon us. And death is our last and great enemy. And it's an enemy which casts a long and a dark shadow. Don't so many people feel that very, very keenly at this time of year? There won't be many families in which the shadow of death 
will not fall on some corner of their Christmas celebrations this year. We go through the life, and by nature, we have this fear of death. Now, have a look at some more of the details of these verses, because in verse 14, we read about how the devil is the one who has, do you see it, the power of death. The devil holds that power, and he possesses it because he is the great accuser. He's the one who loves to prosecute. He loves to be able to point at someone and say, look at them. Isn't it obvious that they are guilty? Doesn't justice require and demand that they be punished? The devil is the one who has this great power of death, and we are left in a state of lifelong slavery. The writer here simply assumes that everyone fears death, and we need to find ways in order to try to deal with that fear, to try to hide it and mask it. We need to find some sorts of strategies and techniques where we can go through life without all the time being confronted by this intolerable fear that comes from death. And people do it in all sorts of different ways. Some people's way of dealing with the fear of death is just to engage in acts of denial. They try to close their mind to it. The writer and polemicist Christopher Hitchens, who died a number of years ago now after battling cancer, um, he was a militant atheist, and he was asked, do I fear death? And his answer was, no, I'm not afraid of being dead because there's nothing to be afraid of. I won't know it. That's a clear, a really obvious case of denial. There's nothing to fear. There's nothing to be anxious or troubled about because death simply is the end and there's nothing after that. Some people engage in denial. Many, many more people, and we'll see it over the next number of weeks, they mask this fear by means of distraction. So much of our busyness and our love of entertainment is really deep down an attempt to divert our gaze away from that grim shadow that hangs over us. Most people simply don't allow themselves to think about what is absolutely inevitable for all of us. The fact that we're going to die and we're going to have to give an account to Almighty God. So some people close their minds in denial. Other people go through life and they'll go through Christmas trying to distract themselves. Other people engage in delusion. The idea that perhaps one way or another, I'll be good enough or religious enough, generous enough, kind enough, so that in the end, there will be nothing to fear. And the devil, the great accuser, the one who possesses the power of death, he is involved in all those different forms of blinding. He tricks us. He tricks men and women into thinking that there really is nothing to worry about. He cons us. 
He whispers to us deep in the recess of our hearts, you'll be all right. There really is nothing to fear. And it suits him. It suits him very well because it then leaves us in the dark. And that is what we need to be freed from. We need to be freed from the one who holds the power of death. We need to be freed from this situation of lifelong slavery to the fear of death. So that's what we need to be delivered from. Secondly, why is Christmas the beginning of that freedom? Why is Christmas, why is the incarnation so central in all of this? Why is it that the story of the eternal Son of God being sent into this world, being born as Jesus Christ, why is that the beginning of the freedom that we need? Well, it's because verse 14, at Christmas time, we celebrate this most profound of mysteries, that the Son of God partook of our flesh and blood. The eternal Son of God became a man. Although remaining fully God, the eternal Son became fully man. How can that be? That is a mind-boggling mystery. How did it happen? Well, it happened by the Son taking to Himself a real, true human nature. Our writer wants us to be so sure that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, was made like us in every respect. He had a true body and a true soul. The child in the manger had real eyes and hands and bones and organs. Real human blood was pulsing through his veins. He had a fully human mind. Verse 17 gives us the phrase, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. When the Son of God was born as a baby, he didn't happen merely to resemble someone who had some human qualities, but he was made like those whom he came to save, actually in every respect. It's not as if the baby who was lying there in the manger was some kind of simulation, some kind of virtual reality. No, the eternal son took a real and true human nature. He was enfleshed. He was made like us in every way except for sin. What a mystery it is. It was a mighty work of the triune God, a great work of the Trinity. The Father planned and prepared a body for His Son. How could it be sinless? Well, not because Mary was sinless, 
but because he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary so that through his virgin birth, his humanity would be sinless. The Son willingly assumed this human nature, bringing it into personal union with himself. Now, I wonder, have you thought through and pondered these mighty truths? I wonder if you really considered the full implications of what the writer to the Hebrews is talking about here. He had to be made like us in every respect. I think a lot of people, when they think about Jesus, almost have the idea that, yes, he had a human body, but somehow or other, inside his mind or maybe his soul, maybe those things were divine. Well, that is not true. He was made like us in every respect. His humanity wasn't some kind of pseudo-humanity. His flesh was not like some kind of elaborate costume which was put on. It's not as if he was something like some kind of superhero where everything on the outside appears human, and yet if you were to peel it back on the inside, well, there, there would be something which was divine. The one who was born in Bethlehem had a true body which corresponds to every aspect of our humanity, only without sin. After he was conceived in the most supernatural act that is conceivable, well then he was born in an entirely normal way. His body was like ours. As he lay in his mother's arms, he didn't just appear to be a baby, he was. And even though we might sing in the coming days, in the words of away in the manger, those, that phrase, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes, he certainly could have cried, calling out in discomfort in that manger, or when he needed to be fed, he had five senses just like ours, and real human emotions. No one ever rejoiced like he did, and no one has ever wept like he did. Although fully God, he was also fully man, with all the inherent weakness and frailties and vulnerabilities that come with it. And he had a true human soul. The soul, that part of us which is so hard to describe, the invisible, non-physical part of us, he partakes of that as well. He had a human mind, a human soul, a human heart, and a human will. And all of that is incomprehensible. It is a great and a mighty wonder. It is a profound mystery because the one who was born was the eternal Son of God himself.
It's a profound mystery because who can comprehend two natures so vastly different coming together in one person? It involves differences greater than what we can even conceive of. It's the mystery of eternity in time, of immensity in space, of the infinite in the finite, of the Almighty One in weakness, of the unchangeable One in change, the all as it were in that which many would look at and count as nothing at all. The immortal God took on mortal human flesh. This is a great mystery. The one who gave life to all and yet became one who had to be sustained in his life. The one who in creation held the universe himself had to be held. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. He possessed all that belongs to God and all that belongs to man. This is the greatest mystery, the greatest miracle that has ever happened. This is the mystery of Christmas. This is the wonder of the incarnation. So, where are we up to? Well, the writer tells us that everyone going through this world, the people that we will have passed on the street as we walked here this evening, they are going through life in a state of fear. It is the fear of death. The devil is the one who holds that power. And Christmas, the incarnation, this wonder, it is the beginning of our freedom. Let's pose the question now, why did this have to happen? So that phrase again that comes up in our verses, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why must this happen? Why had it to happen? Why is this necessary? Why the necessity? Verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Our writer here says the matter with great conviction. It had to happen. There was no alternative but for this to take place. Well, it's answered for us in the verses. Why is it? Well, the verse goes on to say, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. It had to happen because only as a man could he become a high priest of mercy and faithfulness. It wasn't enough for him merely to resemble a human being. In order to rescue us from sin and death, he had to become our fellow man so that he could act as our high priest. Humanity was created to know God, to commune with God. Back before sin came into the world, God would visit Adam and Eve in the garden and he would walk with them. 
And at that stage in paradise, they didn't need a priest. They didn't need a go-between. It was only when sin came in that a separation followed. And once sin comes in and death with it, well then something needs to happen to bring about reconciliation. Atonement needs to be made. God's just wrath needs to be appeased. We need a priest. We need a great high priest. In the Old Testament, once a year, on the day of the atonement, the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies with blood in order to pour it out in the mercy seat so that the people would receive mercy rather than judgment. But in the Old Testament, every priest and every sacrifice had some blemish in it. The whole system was set up to point onwards to the great high priest to come, the one who would offer a perfect sacrifice, namely himself. And only as a man could the Son be our high priest. Only a human being could pay for human sin. Jesus Christ would make a sin offering so that the sins of his people could be forgiven. The high priest had to be human because the offering that he had come to make was the offering of his very life. He wasn't just the priest making the offering. He was the very offering itself. And so get back to our question. Why did this have to happen? Well, suppose just one aspect of his humanity was missing. Just one small part of it. Well, if part of his humanity was not there, well, then he would not have been qualified. He had to be made like us in every respect so that he could be our substitute. And because the eternal Son of God took a full and complete human nature to himself, he is qualified in a unique way. This had to happen because the one who would buy our freedom is our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who offers himself. He is a perfect priest who is both merciful and faithful. And both those words, they matter so much. He's a high priest who is, first of all, merciful. Mercy. It's a great word, isn't it? And mercy is so much more than a feeling. If you see someone in need and you're moved, but you do nothing about it, are you really merciful? Mercy means to be grieved and then moved to take action in order to meet those needs. And in taking to himself a human nature so that he could die for us, Christ demonstrated the great mercy of our God. He's merciful, but he's more than that. He is also faithful. This high priest is a merciful and faithful one, faithful in the service of God, faithful to the Father in all things. Faithful to the Father from his incarnation right through his life 
to his crucifixion, faithful and obedient in everything which was required of him. That life of faithful obedience took him right to the cross. He obeyed his heavenly Father perfectly in life and in death. So we could maybe see two different directions here. He is a high priest who's merciful towards us and who is faithful in his service of God. And as a perfect priest, he was able to make a perfect sacrifice. Look at the end of verse 17. That means that in his death, he could make a propitiation for the sins of his people. Propitiation. That's one of those five-syllable words that sometimes we can find off-putting. Well, propitiation simply means that God's anger at our sin is taken away. The result is that God's just wrath against the sins of his brothers and sisters is satisfied. And how does this come about? How does this great high priest make propitiation? Well, it comes because his death is one as a substitute. He dies as the God-man. And because of his humanity, he could be our substitute and he could stand in our place. And because of his divinity, his death could be something which could have infinite value. He could stand as a substitute for every one of his brothers and sisters. He bore the guilt and the punishment. As a merciful and a faithful high priest, he made propitiation for the sins of his people. And because of that, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So do you see how we've come back to where we started? He became human precisely so that he could die. And the freedom which he won came through death. He had to become like us so that he could die in our place as our substitute. And what does this mean for the nature of the baby in the manger? Well, there he lies as we see him with the eye of faith. He was human, really and fully human, made like us in every respect. So he's one who can be our substitute. And yet that child who lies there is also divine. And that means that his sacrifice could be one of infinite worth. And in his death on the cross, Jesus destroyed the devil's power. He delivered the knockout blow which left the devil without any power over the eternal destiny of those who belong to Jesus Christ. You see, Satan's ultimate weapon against us always was our sin. But if our sin is forgiven and taken away, well, then the devil has effectively been disarmed. His most powerful weapon has been taken out of his hands. The price has been paid, and therefore, there is nothing left to pay. Now, we know this theology from the words that we sing at this time of year. Remember the words of the carol? 
mild he lays his glory by. Born that man, no more may die. Or maybe you can think of the great chorus from Handel's Messiah, thanks, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we've been set free, if he was born so that men and women need no longer die, well then, we don't need to fear. We don't need to fear our last and greatest enemy. And if we don't need to fear the greatest enemy, well then, ultimately, there is nothing left to fear at all. The freedom of Christmas, it comes from the incarnation and where the incarnation would lead to at the cross of Calvary. One last question. How does knowing this change everything? Because believe me, knowing this really does change everything in this world. This great mystery is one which is profoundly life-changing. It changes everything. Have a look at verse 18 to see the answer that we'll look at to why this changes everything. We read there, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. When Jesus cried out, it is finished, his work of propitiation was final and complete. But the work of Jesus Christ for his people was not finished at that point. His work here on earth during the time of his humiliation, it came to an end. But the ministry of Jesus Christ did not complete itself at that point. His work today, this evening, for his brothers and sisters, it continues. If you're a believer here this evening, the work of Jesus Christ for you is going on right now because he is your helper and he is able to help you with all that you are facing in this life all the temptations that we run up against from the world, the flesh, and the devil. He is able to help us in all those things. Well, how is it that he helps us? Well, the first thing to say is that he helps us because he understands. He has the ability to help us in our times of stress and sorrow and suffering because right now, he understands. That means that he can come alongside us with true sympathy and empathy. He can speak to us from his heart and say with all sincerity, I know. I understand what it is that you are going through. I have felt as you feel. When Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, when he was lifted up to his heavenly throne at the Father's right hand, he did not leave his humanity behind. The incarnation is the greatest miracle, and it is one 
which is never repeated and it was one and is one that does not come to an end. He remains forever the God-man. He's there right now at the Father's right hand as the God-man. And there with his Father, his human heart is filled with mercy. The human heart of the risen, ascended, glorified Jesus Christ, it is filled with mercy for his own. Because he is his himself, someone who suffered when tempted. He experienced the temptations that we face and all the sufferings of this life. Was he really tempted? Yes, he was. In every way as we are, only without sin. He never sinned, but he suffered intense temptation. And that means he knows it firsthand and he understands. He experienced life on earth in a human body and life with a human soul. He experienced human pain and human temptations. He knew what it was like to be a craftsman laboring with his hands. He suffered poverty and loneliness and humiliation. For at least part of his life, he was homeless. Temptation came to him from every quarter. No one endured temptation like he did. His family turned on him for a season. He knows our sorrows. He knows what it's like for us to lose our closest loved ones in death. He knows what it is to feel the weakness that is within our human bodies. Right on the eve of his death, the greatest temptation came, and it was so severe that he sweated great drops of blood. He was made like us in every respect. He knows what it's like for his friends to desert him at his point of greatest need. He was falsely accused and subjected to a great miscarriage of justice. He was ridiculed and mocked and scorned. He tasted death. He experienced all these things personally, not secondhand. He knows the full force of temptation. That is why knowing this changes everything. He knows those very human experiences that we endure. He knows how they feel. He's not like some superhero who's distant, perhaps merciful to us, but completely unlike us. We can be confident that because he was made like us in every way, he can sympathize with us. He can help us because he understands. But here's the good news that we close with. He has far more to offer us than simply his sympathy. He was raised from death to glory, and now he intercedes for us at the Father's right hand. God raised him from the dead because his sacrifice as our great high priest, his sacrifice of his very life, it was accepted. And now he is seated at the Father's right hand. 
He's not there standing like a priest of old whose sacrificial work was never done. He sits down because his work is finished. He's always there at the right hand of the Father as the God-man. He has taken on our humanity fully and permanently. He remains faithful and merciful in heaven. He knows, and so he can act on your behalf as your great high priest. He's there praying for us to persevere through this life, through all the challenges that we face at this time. He's there praying for us in all the sorrows and the suffering that we bear. He can help us. He can intercede for us. And that changes everything. And because of that, all fear is now truly gone. And when the fear is gone, we are free. We are free to love and to rejoice and to have peace and to have hope. And we're not left to ourselves. The one who freed us now helps us. And he helps us as one who understands our needs perfectly. The freedom which Christmas brings, the freedom which is only possible through the incarnation, that freedom, it changes everything. Let us pray. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory o'er the grave. O come, thy dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night, and death's dark shadows put to flight. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts. This season, may we glimpse the greatest mystery in a new way. Help us to plumb something more of its depths. Cause us to rejoice and to truly celebrate this great wonder, knowing that our Lord Jesus Christ was made like us in every way so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest, the one who would win forgiveness, the one who would turn away your wrath, the one who would bring the freedom that we long for so desperately. Father, help us to rejoice in that this Christmas. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you so much, Marty, for opening up God's word to us and helping us to see something of the glory of Christ. We're going to respond now by standing together to sing, you're the word of God the Father, thinking of that wonderful, majestic opening to John's gospel, where we read of the eternal word of God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ.
taking on flesh to save us. Let's stand together and sing. seated. Thank you again so much for coming, Marty. Perhaps some of you might have some questions for Marty or something you'd like to discuss. I'm sure he'll be able to uh, stick around for a moment afterwards and uh, answer any of those over our refreshments. There'll be some refreshments at the back. Please do stick around if you're able to.